And here we have been looking at Revelation chapter 2 at the fourth of seven churches. These churches existed in history. They are not periods of time. This church that we will read about today is called Thyatira. The church at Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2. It is the last book in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. And we will begin reading there at verse 18. Again, this is the, uh, the book, uh, the last book in the Bible, revealing what will happen in the end. This is about the second coming, not about the rapture, but about the second coming in which Jesus comes to reclaim the earth from this world's ruler. And we look into this letter that was given to the church at Thyatira. It was a cyclical letter. In other words, there were seven churches here. It would be passed on from one church to the other. We looked at the church at Ephesus, characterized by their work, but characterized also by their loss of their first love. We looked at the persecuted church, the little church at Smyrna, the church that tolerated false teaching last week, the church at Pergamum. And this week we look at the church that tolerated sin, tolerated sin, and what God speaks about that. Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces." As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow in a word of prayer together and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would illumine our minds. May your Spirit grant to us understanding that we might hear and understand and heed. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. There's a story about a certain man in Haiti. And in Haiti, he was trying to sell his house. I read that he was trying to sell his house for $2,000. And Haiti is a very impoverished place. And $2,000 was a lot of money. 
And there's a man who came, he wanted to buy the house, but he couldn't afford $2,000 to buy that house. It was a small house, I guess. And because he was poor, he began to barter with the man. And $2,000 is way too much. And they began to bicker back and forth. And finally, uh, they agreed on a price. The man who wanted to sell sold it for about half of the original price, about $1,000, with the stipulation that if he were to sell it to this man, he would be able to keep a nail protruding just above the door, in the door jamb there. Well, after several years, the original owner came back and he said to the man, I want to buy my house back. He really wanted to buy the house back and he knew that he had done the guy a favor. And yet the man who was now in ownership of the house, he was unwilling to sell. So the first man went out and he found a carcass of a dead dog and he hung it, that nail that he still owned, in front of that house. And soon after, well, the house became unlivable and the family, of course, was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The moral of the story is that if you leave even one peg on the house of your life, so to speak, one sin in your life, sin will come and hang its rotting garbage in your life and it will pollute your heart, making you, what, of no use to the Lord. That's what sin does to the life of the Christian. That's what sin does to the life of a church as well. God always calls in the scriptures us to confession and repentance because each time we sin, we hurt our relationship with God and that spills over as a very putrid, pungent odor into other people's lives as well as our own. No one sins in anonymity and it doesn't affect others. It affects others because it limits your own effectiveness for the cause of Christ as a Christian. It limits others and terms of you being a blessing to them or an encouragement or what you could be to them and hurts you as well. That's what we've been talking about, the problem of sin, particularly here in the church at Thyatira, a church that not only tolerated false teaching like they did in Pergamum, but they tolerated sin within the church. So here there is an introduction to this church that tolerated sin where Jesus, Jesus introduces himself as the son of God. One who comes and he says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and perseverance and so on and so forth. And your deeds of later is greater than at first. And the city of Thyatira, it wasn't a very big city. And when you look at this particular letter compared to all of the other seven, it is the longest. But to the smallest of cities, small city wasn't a very... Wasn't a very prominent city, not like Pergamum. We talked about that last week. Pergamum had at least existed some 250 years as the capital of Asia Minor. But if you wanted to go to Pergamum and you wanted to capture Pergamum, if you were an enemy power, you would have to come through Thyatira, especially if you wanted to come through the south. So it held a military garrison there. So invading armies would come and plunder Thyatira before going on to Pergamum. It was a city that was often captured, destroyed, rebuilt, captured, destroyed, rebuilt, and so on and so forth. Until the time of the Romans, 190 B.C., 190 before Christ came on the scene there, the Romans brought a, what they called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, 
in which the whole empire was at peace. And this is important because along with the peace that the Romans brought, they also brought in roads. You've heard of the Roman road system. Of course, these were the precursors to the time when Christ would come, the right time when God had ordained that the world would be at peace and roads would be built such that the gospel would go forth very, very easily when Christ was born. But this peace also brought, and the roads also brought, a lot of commerce. So Thyatira became a a place of great commercialism, in which people of all sorts of trades would come in. There would be wool workers and bronze workers, metal workers. There would be those who were tanners and potters and bakers. And of course, with each of these groups of people, if you were part of a particular profession, you would be required to join their guild. And a guild is like a, a workers' union. All the auto workers are in a part of a union, you know. And here there were all the tanners who were part of the tanners' guild. And those who were part of the iron workers were those who were part of the iron workers' guild. Even Lydia, one of the biggest uh, t- things that happened at uh, trades that happened at Thyatira was that of dyeing wool. And Lydia, who came to know Christ in Asia Minor, one of the first, if not the first person who came to know Christ because of Paul's missionary's journeys, was from Thyatira. And she was a dyer of purple fabrics, a a seller of purple fabrics. And so each of these guilds, though, the problem came in because each of these guilds had their own God. Had their own God and people would be required to worship this God to offer offer sacrifices to this God to eat of the sacrifices that were taken food that was sacrificed to idols and often afterwards there were uh, drunken parties and immorality that would happen and so as a Christian you can see the difficulty that a baker might have because the baker's guild would invite them to come and and then there would be all of this immorality and sin that would occur. And they would say, well, I, I can't be a part of this. And they would struggle with that. And that was the big issue here. That was a huge issue. Even though Apollo was the main deity in the town, they had more problems with the guilds because of the immorality and the gods associated with each of these guilds. And so here Christ gives to them, as he does in each of these letters, a commendation of something that they had done well, but then a condemnation of what he saw as a deficiency and a serious concern within the church. And so we look at the commendation in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He knew of their deeds and the way that it's written. There are four things after their deeds. There's the love, service, faith, and perseverance. And these are what, grammatically speaking, are a part of what he means by deeds. They are the love, service, faith, and perseverance. And here, service and perseverance, the way it's written, is set in opposition to love and faith. In other words, it reads like this. It is your your deeds, which are these four things. And it is your love which manifests itself in service and faith which manifests itself in your perseverance. And he compliments them on that. That is their commendation. They are complimented and commended for their love for God which showed itself in their service to God. This is the thing that Ephesus lacked. Ephesus lacked a love that was for God and for his people and they, and they were condemned for that. 
But true love is shown in the service that it provides. When you love someone, when I was reading this and I thought about it, I thought to myself, you know what? Yeah, you're, you know, the, 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 the thing about loving something, you'll do anything for it. You'll give up anything for it or whatever it might be. I thought of my father. You know, if I said to my father later on after, Dad, why don't we go to Old Country Buffet? Everything would be dropped. When are we going? And my whole family would go. I mean, when you love something, you love your work, time flies by. If you don't love your work, boy, you're counting the clock. If you love your, your kids, the, the, the events that you go to or whatever you do won't seem like work. It won't be a burden for you. You love your spouse. Well, you think you, it won't seem like work when you love money. Some people have a love for money and you know what? They'll, they'll spend all of their time. It doesn't matter trying to either save money or make more money or whatever it might be. Some of you I know love food. And well, you know, whatever your favorite restaurant is, no complaints about going. You'll make the time for what you love. Most of us love ourselves. And so we spend time feeding ourselves, looking at ourselves in the mirror, whatever it might be. You love yourself. You'll serve yourself. You have no problem spending money on yourself. But talk about giving to somebody else. Well, that's another story sometimes. The point of the matter is that when Christ commends them, he commends them for their love for God, which manifests itself in service. That is their commendation, their service to God. And if we love God, our desire to serve God will be there. It won't seem like a burden. It won't seem like, oh, this is something else on my schedule. I've got to do this, all these, you know, I've got to you know, teach Sunday school or whatever. It's their work that is manifested because of their love. That's the same commendation that Paul writes in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It is their work or their labor prompted by love in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. So when you look at your own heart, you ask yourself, how much do I love God? You ask yourself, how much do I desire to serve God? I was at a, a small group meeting at another church. They had invited me to come and share with them some things about starting a new ministry and all of that. And I was sharing with them about the, 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 the uh, participation, the importance of serving in the church and having people serve and participate in the church because, you know what, it's part of a, a church family and that's what we're supposed to do. That's what God desires of us. He's given us gifts and things like that. And, and I shared with them, too, how I've shared with you that if your desire is not to serve God, you have no desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be, you know, out there in your workplace or serve him in the church or the context or whatever, then you know what? Heaven is not a place where you want to go. You don't want to go to heaven because in heaven, what will you be doing? You'll be serving God, won't you? And what a privilege it is to serve God. What an honor it is to serve the living God, to be an ambassador of the King. And if you don't have that desire, you say, I don't want to serve, I don't want to do anything, I don't you know, just come and you know, fill my thimble and then go out the door, whatever it might be. You know, you don't want to go to heaven because you'll be given, we'll look at it later on, you'll be given responsibilities. When you get to heaven, the, Christ will desire to share His rule with you. We desire to serve God. And that is what they are commended for. Their desire to say, you know what, I want to serve God and give God my life to use as a living sacrifice for Him. Then they were commended for their faith manifested by perseverance. Perseverance means a, a firm persuasion to what's true. They were dependable. They were trustworthy. They were steady and reliable. 
That doesn't mean that Christians are perfect or they don't stumble and fall or whatnot. But, you know, a true Christian will be, will be faithful. God will keep them. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. They won't outright go and deny Christ. They won't say they turn their back on Jesus who saved them. When they do, John tells us in 1 John 2, 9 that those who went out from us, they were not really of us. And that's why they went out from us so that it might be shown that they are not all of us. And some people wonder, why do people go from, from, from God? Well, one reason may very well be because they never had a relationship with God. So they're commended for their love which showed itself in a desire to serve and they're commended for their faith which showed itself in persevering. And it is commendable. It is commendable for those things for a church to be. And that is what we are to be as well. But then they were condemned. Condemned for something that was so misguided. They were condemned because Christ had something against them. Verse 20 and 21. It was their tolerance of sin. In the church, the tolerance of sin. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So they commit acts of immorality and things sacrificed to idols. There was somebody, a self-proclaimed prophetess, who was given some position in the church to teach. She's given some position in the church to teach and, and Jezebel is probably not her real name. This is not the Jezebel of the Old Testament. It was probably a euphemism for who she was. You know, if you were to say, uh, you know, so-and-so is a Superman, you wouldn't think, oh, his name Superman. It was symbolic of the wicked wife of King Ahab. King Ahab was the king of Israel. You can find him in 1 Kings 16, 30-33, and he was a very wicked king. And what he did, not only was uh, his, his idolatry, but what he did was he married this Sidonian or Phoenician, probably one of the uh, sea peoples that came and resided there. He married her, and what she did was she brought to Israel Baal worship, perhaps even Asherah worship, the goddess of fertility. And all began to worship and serve Baal. The Bible says that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And she led them into morality. The nation of Israel she did. So whom did she teach? My bondservants, those who were Christians. And some suggest, well, perhaps in context she was teaching them something like, well, it's okay if you're a part of those guilds. You have to make a living after all. And, you know, you, and, and, you, know you can't be perfect. Just, a, just have a little bit of that food that's sacrificed to idols and, you know, just don't get too involved, perhaps. But you can go to those with impunity because God will forgive you. Maybe an antinomian view. God will forgive you. Or it's, it's not really very clear or whatever it might be. Such that she was leading people who were in the church to commit immorality and to eat food that was sacrificed to idols by which they were forbidden. And it was seen as sin. And Christians can easily fall into sin by rationalizing, perhaps similar to how this lady was teaching. Rationalizing, saying, you know what, God will forgive me, I'll just do it this one time. Or it's okay because I'm a Christian and, and they can deceive themselves into thinking that it's acceptable to God. Or God won't punish me and there's no fear of God in their heart. And they tolerate sin because they love sin. They love sin. 
We all love sin. We have a fight in our flesh against sin. We fight against our sinfulness. We fight against the, the philosophy of the world and the temptation that comes. You think to yourself, well, I'd never engage in immorality like this. Or how could a church fall into something this serious? Because it was terror. This is a very serious condemnation against this church. Yet we do today. We look at churches and they'll call certain things. Well, that's just a gray area. Or it's not explicitly here in the Bible. Or it doesn't say it in those words. Or in that culture, what I call the cultural canon, they just say, well, that's, in that culture it was, it was like this, such and such. But we in our culture, we know better today. Some can call sins addictions or mental illnesses. I have things that are mailed to the church office talking about certain counseling issues and they call them illnesses. Wendy Kaminer is an author. And she, she, she's not a Christian, but she writes this. This is a very you know, astute observation. Quote, Christian codependency books are practically indistinguishable from codependency books published by secular writers. Now, popular religious literature equates illness with sin, unquote. Of course, that brings up a huge issue because if it's a sickness, you know, you have no reason to come in repentance to God because of something you've chosen to do. You're sick. Give me a pill. It's in your genes or whatever it might be. But idolatry and immorality are sin. So, the Bible teaches us about the seriousness of, of sin and causing others to stumble. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 18, there's a very, very explicit passage of Scripture that talks about this in Matthew 18 as to causing others to stumble. For it says in Matthew 18, 6, Jesus says this. Matthew 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words, the consequences of causing one to stumble would be better to what? Die than to do that. And a millstone wasn't this little tiny stone necklace. That you these, were, these were huge and they were used to crush grain. In fact, they were used as a Roman form of Roman execution. They take a criminal out on a boat, hang this millstone around his neck and toss him over. It was one of the more dreaded forms of execution. So leading someone else and causing them to sin is a very serious issue. But what do we do when we see someone else engaged in sin? Well, it continues on in the same passage, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. This is the way to deal with sinful behavior in a very loving manner with the motive of restoration. And the motive must be right. And the loving manner must be right because we desire that they walk with God. That's our heart's desire, isn't it? We see somebody living in sin. It's, it, we feel badly for them. And you can't go to them and say, Hey, 42 Krispy Kremes is way too much, you glutton. 
You know, so you go to someone and say, you know, are you depressed or something? You know, I I don't think God would want you to eat three dozen of those things in one sitting. You can't look at this passage and say, well, no, 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 that passage, it's not my style. I'm not a confrontive type. No, I, or, you know, I, I'm not that, just that type of, or it's not my culture, in our culture, we don't, we don't go to anybody in private, what we do is we talk about it, uh, I tell the pastor in my culture, that's what I do, no, it's not how we deal with it, that's not what the pastor, this is not a suggestion, it's not one of many options, Jesus here, if your brother sins, this is what the command is, go and show him his fault in private, in private, just between the two of you. So that, you know what, they'll probably say, you know, I've never seen anybody. Uh, you know, I've seen people uh, disciplined out of a church before. Never for gluttony. You know, usually they're, oh yeah, you're right, you know. It's usually for some sin of the body. Something that they want to run from, something, some grip on their life. That is the process that God has commanded to us. Not to tolerate it either or turn a blind eye. But the Lord says even in the book of Revelation as we continue on in 21, verse 21. I gave her time. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. The Lord, you see, is a gracious God. A gracious God who desires that we come to Him. And He desires that we repent of sin and to turn from living our own way. God is patient God. Yet He says what? Uh, not to tolerate sin. Thirdly, we see the consequences here. God's judgment. The judgment of God in verse 22. says, Behold, I'll throw her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, and they, they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. Two consequences. Sickness. Sickness. And her children there doesn't refer to her biological children. It refers to those that she's taught that have come and said, you know what, this is the way I want to follow. And he's given them a lot of time. By the time this was written, the church had been in existence for 40 years. So already there was probably a second generation of adherence to this type of teaching and this type of immorality. They had been around for a long time. This church, more than all the other churches previous to this, was steeped in sin. That is perhaps why such a long letter was written to this church to say, you've got to fix what is here. The Bible desires that the church be pure from sin, pure from corruption. And he says here, look, I know, I search the minds and the hearts, and I give to each one of you according to your deeds. Christ already knows. He already knows what you and I are involved with. He knows what we think. He knows what's in our heart. He knows the motives that we have and He desires, and He has patient God who says, Come and what? Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. He knows what is going on and when it appears in the church, when it appears in the church, the church is to deal with it. That is the instruction that is given to the church. Some people say, well, no, that's their private matter. You know what Peter says in the book of 1 Peter 4, 7? Judgment begins within the house of God, the household of God. Oh, no, 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 that's their private deal. And I know the members or whatnot. Look. God desires that our church, this church and every church of His be pure. 
But he gives a word of comfort to those who are overcomers, those who are believers. And he says, hold fast. The rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, hold fast. I place no other burden on you. Hold fast. Be faithful. Be strong. You, you, you know that Christ is, is saying all of these things and other people probably feel very, very bad. Not only does Christ not look favorably upon that church, but He comes to what? Purge the church of sin. And already they probably face a lot of temptation because they're likely a part of a guild that worships a God and they're trying to make a living. They're trying to survive. And yet there are others who say, no, 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 you're too conservative or whatever it might be. You should just go and eat some of this food. It's really good. It's prime rib. He overcomes. What will the reward be? He will give, number one, authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That is what Christ does. You know, Christ is the king. And someday when we go to heaven, Christ says what? I'm going to share the rulership responsibility with you. I'm going to share the rulership responsibility with you. I mean, you've got to get rid of this idea that someday when you go to heaven, you'll be given wings, a halo, a harp, and sit on a cloud all day long. You'll be given what? Rulership, authority, just like he does and communicates in the, in the parable of the minas. One person's given one, two minas or whatever, and one's given five and one's given ten. They're faithful in what they do. Do you remember what the reward is? You rule over two cities, you rule over five cities, you rule over ten cities. Rulership that is shared authority with Christ. That's what happens. So what happened to this church at Thyatira in the end? Historically, and sadly, the church at Thyatira didn't listen. They didn't deal with their sin issue. And history teaches us that they fell prey to the Montanist heresy, which was a heresy that said there's more revelation of God outside of the Bible. And that church went out of existence by the second century, which was perhaps within the few years after this particular book was written at the end of the first century. The lesson that we learn here, what, is that the church is not to tolerate not only false teaching, but tolerate sin. And in our day and age, tolerance is the, is the key word, it seems like. Oh, let's just tolerate whatever it might be. I read a sad article in the Seattle Times on Monday. I won't go into all the particulars, but basically there was a Methodist pastor in a church in Beacon Hill, Seattle side, that announced during their worship services of a particular alternative lifestyle that they're engaged with. And the senior pastor worked for the right time. And he said this, he said, quote, I wanted her to be known and live for all God created her to be. And because it was the right thing to do, unquote. It's not the right thing to do. The article continues on. And what was fascinating, perhaps in Stunning and sad was the reaction of the congregation. Quote, the reaction was very supportive, said the senior pastor who recounted her comments from the service. They felt badly she would have to keep it closeted. She had served at the church for four years in the process of being ordained. And even their district supervisor, when interviewed, said, I would not anticipate anything striking happening as a result of this statement. This is very, very common. In 2001, it happened up there in the, in the Woodland Park area as well. 
That person was replaced by another person of another alternative lifestyle. Same deal. It's the sign of our times, the day in which we live, when immorality is accepted within the church. It's tolerated. People approve of it. People applaud it. People support it. And even communicate that, you know what? It's okay to tolerate it. We'll just join together and not speak out against it. We'll we'll just kind of uh, join hands and partner maybe even with uh, more important things. An alternative lifestyle like that perhaps is, well, maybe something that... I don't think Jesus would say that. Jesus clearly doesn't say that in the church of Thyatira. Let's partner together. It's okay. You know, it's just food. And food is okay. Jesus desires that His church be pure. And purity in the church begins with purity in our lives. It's been said, love without holiness leads to immorality. Love without holiness leads to immorality. And God desires that the church be pure and purity begins in our lives. Lest sin decides it's going to hang a carcass of your worst sins in front of the door of your heart so that your heart becomes so putrid you're useless to God. God calls us to hold fast to the truth and to live a pure life. The reward is authority. Later on, and the reward is rule for those who will be faithful to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You have stated and said in Your Word, You know the minds and the hearts of each and every person that is here. You will recompense each of us for our own deeds, our own attitudes and our own thoughts. So, Father, even as we prepare for our time of communion, may we come before your table in purity and in truth. May we confess our sin before you. May we make our lives right with you that you might be honored in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.